he got this look of you know understanding dawning on his face and he said so okay my teacher is paid to spend time with me my solicitor is paid to spend time with me my counselor is paid to spend time with me this person is spending time with me just because they want to and it transpired that their volunteer mentor was the only adult in their entire life in England that they engaged with where there wasn't any sort of thought in the back of the young person's mind of they have to be doing this because it's their job. Welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts the toughest challenges to the Christian faith with hope. My name is Barnabas Asprey, but most people just call me Barney. The current frontier challenge we're exploring is the topic of refugees. In this episode, we have a look not only at what it's like to be a refugee, but also how to turn our attention from the past and focus on the future. What can refugees do to establish a more hopeful future in their new country? How can we help refugees overcome obstacles of language and culture to achieve their potential? And why is it a mistake to have a saviour mentality that sees refugees as nothing but needy people to be pitied who can give nothing back? You might want to turn the volume up a bit for this episode as the recording came out a little quiet, but the discussion is a really interesting one, and I really hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm here with two members of Refugee Education UK, or REUK for short, Catherine Gladwell, who's the founder and chief executive, and Schnar Olichuk. Is that how I pronounce it? That is, yeah. Who is a trustee of REUK and also was herself a refugee as a child. So, Catherine, could you just start by telling me a bit about REUK and why it exists and what it does? Sure. Um, well, every time I say that we've been around for 10 years now, it takes me by surprise because it, it feels like about five minutes, but it has been 10 years now. Um, and 10 years ago, I started REUK with a group of like-minded friends. Um, it was initially conceived of as a volunteer project run by a local church in Northwest London, um, working to provide educational mentoring to 10 unaccompanied asylum-seeking young people. And uh, none of us thought that it would grow to what it has become today. We, um, you know, we worked in a living room, we didn't have any paid staff, uh, we, we did have one kind of semi-dodgy laptop, uh, but um, we've grown over the past 10 years in response to um, more and more schools and colleges and local authorities um, and individual young people getting in touch and saying, actually, I could really do with some support in my education. So we exist today to help refugee children and young people get into school. There's all manner of challenges trying to do that when you arrive as a refugee in the UK, whether you're a primary school student or a university level student. But then getting in is obviously only the very first step. So as well as helping children and young people get into education, we then do everything we can to make sure that they can thrive in education. So we have a number of programmes that look at how can young refugees thrive academically and how can they thrive emotionally and psychosocially. And then the last part is then how can they move through education and use that education um, in a way that is meaningful to them. So going right up through to university and having opportunities to lead um, in the communities that they're part of um, and uh, hopefully at some point then transition into the work as well. Yeah, so there must be a whole lot of special challenges to refugees when it comes to being educated. 
Uh, we can talk about them in a minute. But Shnar, how did you get involved with RUK? Um, well, I, I came across Catherine's organization through a friend called Corinna, who I had connected with. And Corinna knew that I was um, considering leaving my um, then job and was looking for, for something to do part-time. And she sort of connected me and Catherine. And I worked with then RSN, now RUK, for about nine months through my pregnancy with my, with my son. And uh, uh, yeah, that's how we know each other. And now I, I help Catherine as, um, in the capacity of a trustee, which is um, amazing. Yeah. Basically, what happened is that after Shnar started working for RUK and then went on maternity leave and decided not to come back to work, we couldn't let her go. <laughs> so, so we decided actually she would be a brilliant, brilliant trustee um, and it's really wonderful to be able to continue working together. Yeah, that's really cool. So is our is RUK doing anything specifically about the current crisis in Afghanistan? Yes, we are. It's, it's been a... It's been quite an intense few weeks since the Taliban took Kabul and it's affected us in a number of ways as an organisation. Uh, I think first and foremost we work with a lot of Afghan young people in this country, probably around about 400 over the last few years. Oh, wow. And they're obviously incredibly concerned. It's very difficult to even put that level of um, anxiety into words about their family members that are um, um, that remain in Afghanistan. We also work with a large number of young people who've been forcibly removed from the UK back to Afghanistan oh, over gosh. the last few years because it was deemed safe to send young people back to Kabul after they turned eighteen. Um, it's obviously now anything but safe, and those young people are getting in touch saying, "What can we do?" to get us resettled. So they're still there um, now? They're still there now. And oh gosh. Unable to, unable to get out and a whole range of other situations. So that's really affecting you know, the way that we're working with the young Afghans that we already know. Um, and then the second half is that we are preparing um, or we're about to launch our emergency response for Afghan children that are arriving right now in England. So we are preparing an educational welcome pack in English, Dari and Pashtu that will help parents just to, I mean, and it really isn't very much, but just to situate their child within the um, English education system, to understand the process of getting a school place, what to expect on your first week at school, and yeah. some of those little things which, you know, I mean, Shana would be able to talk about further are really dis disorientating. And then we're offering training to schools and local authorities and considering how we change our in-person response over the course of this next year as people move out of emergency accommodation into longer term options. Yeah, it must just be really terrifying right at the beginning when you arrive in a new country and, and especially when you didn't mean to leave your own country, you just have to. Mm. I don't know, Shnar, can you share any of uh, your own insights into what it's like to be a refugee as a child? Yeah, sure. I think um, that's that's a that's a wide scope question. What is it like to be a refugee as a child? I think it's um, it's daunting. It's, it's a great source of anxiety. But I think if you spoke the language of a child, it would just be it's scary. It's scary. It's, it's scary, and it's uh, it's it's frightening, and it's a little bit hopeless. I was a refugee in Finland. In Finland, with, okay. In Finland, um, in nineteen ninety five, September of nineteen ninety five is when we arrived in Finland with my mother and my two siblings. We arrived at a police station, because that's what you do in Finland. You go to the police authorities. That's where the 
person who sort of drops you off to go yeah. and seek asylum uh, leaves you. We arrived at a police station, were left there for a number of hours without speaking the language, and we were hungry and we were tired, and my mother heard Persian being spoken. Oh. Because it's the police station, and that's where the refugees sort of get dropped off at. So there was another refugee that was being sort of dropped off, and they had a Persian translator who had been brought in. So my mother went and pleaded with this man to do some translating for us and let them know that we've been here for a long time and we need some food and some something. So yeah, we um, we were then taken to a, um, well, I guess you call it a refugee center, but it was a Red Cross reception sort of a center. Okay. And you go through what I know now to be a process, which is, you know, your documents are taken from you. If you have any, you get given these questionnaires and the translator goes through them with you. And from a grown-up perspective that now knows how these things work, being at the other end of the process, it's all very normal. But being at the sort of like end of the process where you are the refugee and you are a child and you are going through all of this, it's, uh, it's, it's quite something. Like I remember the gentleman that was in the in the Red Cross uh, Center, he said to me, come here, please. And I knew I had heard come here, please. And I knew that I knew the meaning of that because I had had English lessons yeah. in Iran in the summer. But I completely froze and forgot the meaning of come here, please. <laughs> and it was that it was just it was a very strange experience because it, I was frustrated with myself for not knowing how to communicate back to him or for even knowing what he means, but like not knowing to translate it into my own language. Little things like um, bunk beds. They gave us bunk beds in a room, for example, to use, and it had a ladder, and we were too afraid of climbing up the ladder and sleeping on the on the upper bed. Um. So we would share the bottom bunk together with my sister <laughs> because we had never seen people like sleep on a on a above floor type of a thing. Just a lot of things that are unknown when, when you consider where we came from. But I think the overall theme was fear, embarrassment, a certain, a quite embarrassment. A, yeah, just being sort of embarrassed of not knowing how to open doors that you haven't seen before, like sliding doors were something we had not seen before because I, I came from a small town. Um, not knowing how to operate a mixer tap, actually. So, so the, the ones that you put your hand underneath and uh, it's touch sensor type of a thing where you don't have anywhere to, to sort of lift up the lever oh, of the tap, the mixer tap. Things like that. Like I, in my school, there were, there were no levers on the taps. So it was all sent, touch, uh, sort of you put your hand underneath the tap and the water comes. And I didn't know that was the case. So I spent a really long time trying to find a way to operate this tap to wash my hands. And I only found out when a fellow student came next to me and sort of just put her hand underneath the tap and water came out. And again, it was very embarrassing not to know that. So just like little things like that that I don't think actually are taken into consideration when it comes to welcoming people because the system is great and it's, it's amazing that there is an actual system or facilities to welcome people and you have to have one in order to sort of meet the volume of people that come in and, yeah. and the sheer needs that they have and, and the vetting that you need to go through, you know, health records, documentation, where do you come from, all of these things so you can categorize them in the right way, so to speak. But um, being at the other end, it's just you don't know any of these things. You don't know why they're asking you. Have you had your vaccination? They're like, how is this relevant? Yeah. <laughs> like, or where is your, why is your identity card saying this name or your passport saying that name? That's like completely, that's not, where I come from, women don't, um, well, they do now, but where, uh, when I was a child, my mother certainly didn't know how to go to anywhere to get documentation or anything like that. So all of our documents were sort of sourced by either my father or my uncles. 
So if you ask my mom why are the documents named in this way or patterned in this way, she would have no idea because she didn't get them. Oh, yeah, so no experience of just all of the admin that you have to do. Yeah, I, I, and again, admin is a word that my mother, for example, had not heard of and we as children didn't know anything about. So did you ever feel, did, did you ever have experiences which made you feel unwelcome? I think by default you feel unwelcome and I think by yeah. default you feel, I think just you feel unplugged in a way and you feel like it's, you can't, you kind of like are in two minds, you're excited to be in a nicer, safer place, but at the same time you're sad about not being, because I think your rightful thinking is telling you that that's where my home is and my home should be as nice and safe as here is. So yeah. why can't my, my place of belonging be like this place is? And then like it kind of like, I think for, for me it was anyway when we arrived in Finland, I kept thinking, oh, we should have that in Kurdistan. Oh, if we had that, it would be amazing. Like when I went to school, I was like, oh my gosh, I hope my school was like this. And then all of my childhood friends, we could all go to school together in a school like this. So these are some of the thoughts that I was having. I don't know if we were made to feel unwelcome by people so much. I think it's just the situation itself that makes you feel out of place. And that sort of breeds a level of that anyway by default without yeah. anyone really even like doing anything to make you feel unwelcome. So a question for both of you. Like, what do you think locals can best do to help make refugees feel welcome? I think the systems and the patterns and the things that have to be done like the, you know, there's a process, the process is great and, and improving the, pro the process is done by people who do this day in and day out. But I think involving people, like for example, like by doing this interview, you're involving my view of this and my yeah. experiences of this. Involving people who have, who have gone through a similar thing, who have some, the, it adds the human touch to the process, if that makes sense, because it very much is a process and you do feel like a, you don't, you don't ever, like I don't ever remember going through everything that we were going through. I don't ever remember anyone having any concerns about how I felt about that situation. I felt like everyone was doing their part of the job, taking it off because it was all part of, like there were people at the Red Cross Center, for example, where we were staying for two and a half years actually, who um, they were working shifts. So, yeah. you know, one of them would come at 7 a.m. and he would leave at 7 p.m. And then the other one would come at 7 p.m. and then stay until 7 a.m. And it was their job. Yeah. It wasn't really ever, there was never a connection to be made. At school, we had the specialist teacher who was teaching us because we, you know, they wanted to manage our, teach us how to conduct ourselves in a completely different environment. But we were never sort of like, it took a very long time for us to be included into like the normal way of like doing things or into the normal classes, if that makes sense. We were kept in a different class and then we would have lunch at a different time for a long time before we were like integrated into it. And I think now that I think about as a grown up being on the other side of things, I, I, it makes sense to, to have some integration um, steps. Yeah, absolutely. And all of that. But at the same time, I don't actually think anyone thinks through the, the psychological aspect or the human aspect of like, how does this make this person feel? And also long term, how, what are the benefits of doing things like this um, in terms of integrating people into society? Like having worked at REUK, I think what's really amazing is that like there isn't a separate college where these kids go. They get integrated into the same college where everyone else's children are and everyone all the other same, whatever similar age yeah. are. It has its own challenges and there is a great deal of 
like I, I was a mentoring coordinator and I would meet with some of these young people to connect them to a mentor and sometimes it would take three or four efforts to try and get them to show up on time for the meeting and meet their mentor and things like that but I think it's, it's important to sort of take into context in there that there is so much background missing like a, a normal child by normal I mean someone who has been uh, born here has had the opportunities that that people have in the Western world has had you know gone through the school system and had like developed the discipline of waking up on time and showing up on time for a meeting yeah you know as much as one can in that age is is something it's not a privilege that these guys have had like some of these um, these unaccompanied I guess it's just your whole life is kind of in disorder it is and yeah so there's, it is there's no it, it's hard to sort of prioritize things like showing up on time to something. It you're is, just, yeah. You're just sort of swimming in a sea of confusion. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think, yeah, to answer your question in a much shorter way, it's uh, the process is great and it has to be there because of the sheer volume of things that need to be dealt with and handled. But also the human touch, I think, can be added by just um, incorporating people who have had a similar experience, for example. Yeah or come from a similar background um, and involving them in the process and asking you know, relevant questions. How can we improve this? Because these things have like long-term consequences. You always like are dealing with long-term consequences when it comes to dealing with refugees. Like I am, for example, as a 37-year-old, still emotionally dealing with some of the stuff that happened when I was 11 or 12 on the first yeah, of year of arrival in Finland. So yeah, I think the sooner you sort of step in and try your best, you can't really remedy everything, but try your best to sort of like take the, into consideration the various different aspects of, you know, the human being as a whole, their emotions, their anxieties, and the rest of it is, uh, I think it's beneficial long-term. Sha was mentioning about the process, and I was really struck by what you said about the shift staff in the Red Cross yeah. Center and how you know, someone comes for the shift and then another person comes from this shift, but there's that, there's not that kind of sense of connection. And yeah. it reminded me about just the importance of friendship and thinking on that sort of one-to-one -one individual level of what just an average person sitting in their house, maybe drinking a cup of tea and listening to this maybe, that it can do in what seems sometimes like an overwhelming situation or a process that feels like there aren't necessarily entry points into for the yeah. like, average person that actually making friends with people is something that anybody can do. And it's just, you know, it's human nature to most of us, isn't it? And mm -hmm. I think volunteering is, is not quite as good as just happening to be able to make friends with someone. But if you're not in a situation where you're interacting day to day and making friends with refugees who are arriving spontaneously, then looking for opportunities where you can develop one-to-one -one connections and friendships by volunteering is something that people can do. And I always remember in the early, in the first couple of years of REUK, when we would had just started the mentoring program that Shah um, has worked on, and I remember doing an initial assessment with a young, um, a young guy, um, 16 years old from Afghanistan, and talking about what the mentoring was going to involve. And it turned out that volunteer was, was one of those words, like the many that Schnarr has noted, that he had never come across before. Yeah. And so as we kind of talked around what that meant, he got this look of, you know, understanding dawning on his face. And he said, so, okay, my teacher is paid to spend time with me. My solicitor is paid to spend time with me. My counsellor is paid to spend time with me. Mm -hmm. This 
person is spending time with me just because they want to. And it transpired that their volunteer mentor was the only adult, their social worker was another one that they'd mentioned, yeah. paid to spend time with me. This mentor was the only adult in their entire life in England that they engaged with whether it wasn't any sort of thought in the back of the young person's mind of they have to be doing this because it's their job and already just conceptually you can see that that communicated something small but something nonetheless of welcome and of like there's someone who wants you to be here and wants you to thrive it just values Um, you as a person over and above their job yeah 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 that's really interesting. Which is obviously not to take away from people who work as social workers and teachers and solicitors, but on a, you know on the psychological level, yeah. if we're looking for what a mum with three kids at home could do, then there's there is something really important. Yeah. So then you you need all of those professional things as well, but they're not enough if the refugee is actually going to feel genuinely welcome and start yeah. to integrate properly. That's really interesting. So why? Uh, why this focus on education for refugees? Why is education so important? <laughs> uh, you're looking at me, so uh, I can <laughs> kick off. And... So for us, the reason that we focus on education is simply because that is what the vast majority of young people that we've interacted with have said they wanted. I mean, I sometimes say that if I had a pound for every time a young person said, I just want to start school, that you know, as an organisation, we'd never need to do any fundraising ever again. But it is consistently one of the first things that young people say is their priority. And it, someone, someone described it to me once as being like the key. That if I feel like I'm staring at a wall, if I can go to school, if I can go to college, it's like I'm being given a key that will find a door and unlock it and provide like the hope of a way through. Um, and so. That really is why. So it really came from just listening to the refugees themselves and saying, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? And that was what they said. Yeah, so we we had a very generic name when we started. Shnaz mentioned it already, Refugee Support Network. And although we focused on education from the start, we've named ourselves quite generically on purpose. But as we were doing the initial conversations with young refugees and in schools and with social workers, it came out again and again that education was the kind of primary core unmet need within that age group. And so happily, that was something we could contribute to. I mean, had we been a group of doctors, the outcome might have been different. Um, <laughs> but we weren't. I'm a teacher by background um, a long time ago. So it was actually when we had again and again, education, education, education. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on why that is? Why, why is education so valuable for refugees? Why do they care so much about it? One, one thing that happens again and again with us is that, I mean, I'm really interested to hear what you think about this because I don't think we've had this kind of specific conversation before, but um, everything is backwards looking. You know, when you arrive, Shnaz talked quite a lot about the process, which is like, tell us about this from your past. Tell us about why this happened, tell us where you're from, review all of this stuff that's happened that you, you know, should justify in some way why you, why you should be allowed to stay here. And so for young people when they arrive, all of their meetings with their solicitors tend to be backward looking. Based, based on the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas education is forward looking and it's about the hope of something different and the hope of something better. 
and so for us it's actually a tangible way of taking what is an abstract concept of hope um, and hope for the future and education practically is something that we can pin that concept on and be like okay this expresses what we actually believe Yes, it helps them think about their own futures and prepare for their own futures in a way that nothing else in the process actually does. The rest of the process is just about explaining why they're here and how they got here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. So have you come across any common misunderstandings that people have about refugees? In, so just like from the ordinary people in, in host countries or misconceptions? Um. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is when I eventually started to speak Finnish fluently and, and make friends at school, my best friend, who is to date my best friend and lives in Finland, Nora, I remember the first question she asked me about where I come from, and that was after being friends for about six, seven months, and we were like besties at school and like glued to each other and stuff. She was like, do you live in tents where you come from? <laughs> okay. And I thought to myself, actually, I there's more marble... Um, being used to build houses in Iran, <laughs> then you will be able to find in whole of Finland. But it's interesting, like, I, she knew nothing about where I come from. I mean, this is way back in, this was 1998 already. Um, yeah. And uh, there wasn't, like, people didn't have the internet the way they do now and social media and stuff where you see, you don't have to go anywhere, you can see the whole world on your phone type of a thing. But yeah, I think misconceptions are, some of them are actually not illegitimate, some of them are legitimate. You can call them misconceptions, or you can call them like cultural associations, because yeah. I, you know there are certain behavior patterns or certain things that certain people do from certain people, groups in the world that are... Just sort uh, of cultural stereotypes. Exactly, yeah. they are cultural stereotypes. That's not necessarily like a wrong association but you know that, that's well, it's hard to avoid yeah <laughs> it is yeah it is that yeah. but um another thing that now comes to my mind as you asked that is um we had what well, there, there was this young lady called um she wasn't actually all that young at the time there was this lovely lady called uh mariatta who had a lovely husband and four sons and uh at the time we didn't understand and going back to what catherine said about this one person who was the mentor doing things for for, for this one young person uh, free of charge. Mariatta was someone who would come to the Red Cross Center and look for people to speak to, whoever wow. it was. So whoever would sort of sit down with her and and they had this like lounge downstairs where the bedrooms are upstairs and then downstairs was a lounge with a TV and like with a little kitchenette and stuff. So she would come every single Sunday of every single week for the two and a half years that we were there without exception. And I I mean, I don't know how she never took any holidays or anything. She would be there. So we knew if we wake up, we got into the pattern of we wake up on Sunday and we would go downstairs to see Maria, Maria oh, because she wow. was absolutely, she was present and she would come there every single weekend. Um, she would bring us toys, not just us, the other children that were staying there. She would do her best. She would, she had gotten this like Persian and Finnish sort of a little booklet. I don't know where she got it from. She would try and converse with us as much as she could. Um, or trying to learn your language. Yeah, yeah, but I think she would just speak the language of kindness and consistency in general by just showing up on Sundays. Like, we knew that Sundays were going to be the Mariatta day. She would bring us, like, little treats, finished chocolates and stuff. And and she saw us through those two and a half years by the consistency of just showing up and giving my mom emotional support when she would have her breakdowns and stuff like that. And um, later, way later, this was after I had come to England and... Uh, so maybe this is something relevant to what we're, we're sort of discussing. We um, we were obviously, you know, in Iran, you're sort of it's implied that you're born a Muslim because that's the culture and that's the religion of the land. And we were definitely cultural Muslims 
Kurds are mainly. Fast forward through several years, decades, uh, here I am in the UK, I've converted to Christianity and um, I'm sort of getting connected back to my sort of, we're living this, this living out this conversion with my family. We all converted to Christianity, my mother, my two siblings and myself. Oh wow. So we're looking back and thinking, how did we end up here? I'll remember this and that. And my mother goes to church in Turku, where we are from in Finland. And she sees, and we had disconnected from Marietta, by the way, after the two and a half years of yeah. being in the Red Cross Center, and then we were given um, Remain to stay and all of that. Leave to Remain? Called, leave to Remain, there you go, that's how they, in Finnish, it's Remain to stay in the right <laughs> translation. So anyhow, my mom, decades later, sees Marietta at church, and Marietta is in complete, and my mom was having her baptism done, by the way, oh. on that day. So... She, she, my mom is there on the stage being baptized and prayed over and stuff like that. And Marietta is in the church audience and she's in complete like tears and like doesn't know how to handle the whole situation and all of that. After the, the baptism ceremony is over, they're having coffees and teas and stuff afterwards. And, and she goes up to my mom and just completely has a, a moment and tells my mom that those two and a half years that she did by coming every single Sunday... She felt in prayer to do this, like she, she, she was praying, she was a very prayerful woman and she was praying and God had led her to go to this, red, this particular Red Cross Center and give two or three hours of her time every Sunday and, not, and she didn't evangelize to us, she didn't say anything about Christianity or anything to us, she was just kind to us and she was consistent. I don't think we were in a place to be evangelized to at the time. So anyhow, uh, she says to my mom that and I have been praying for your family even since you left the Red Cross Center. I had a remain in, remained in prayer for your family because God had given her a promise that if you don't give up praying yeah. for this family, that they will find their way to you. Wow. And uh, sorry, I'm getting emotional. So it's, it's absolutely astonishing that this woman, without knowing that we had actually converted to Christianity decades later after meeting her and having this two and a half year sort of Sunday yeah. encounters with her and stuff like that. I think it was tremendous for us to realize that, I think it gave us hope to start praying for our family members that, you know, are not with, yeah. with Christ yet. But also it kind of, imagine having prayed all of these prayers all these years and not knowing if, if it got answered or anything. And then all of a sudden to see my mom being baptized, it's like, I can't even imagine like how it felt for her yeah or how many confirmations she got like through her own personal life and how encouraged she probably felt to continue praying for other stuff that were happening in her own life because after we started talking we found that about some of the things that were happening in her son's lives and things like that so and she said okay now i had i had stopped praying for my son like <laughs> a few years ago already yeah. because i just wasn't seeing any change but having seen what's happened here yeah, this has given me, yeah, you, you never know. I mean, if, if, if anyone listening to this is, is a believer and a, and a praying person and thinks that for whatever reason they've prayed for something for a long time and it's not, it's not sort of um, the results that they hope to see aren't there, I think it's really important to, to understand that, that the prayers that we pray are, because um, God is outside of the concept of time, isn't he? Yeah. It goes, it goes, it goes in to the, the, the chain of time, and then it does what it needs to do within that realm. So even if I don't, I mean, imagine, has she not seen us at church? 
on that one particular Sunday, because that's not her regular church. That was a church she was visiting on that one particular Sunday when my mom that was, was being baptized. It was a complete coincidence. It, yeah. Well, it wasn't a coincidence. I think it well, was a God thing because it was a complete, like, a, and then again, they got reconnected, and now my mother and Marietta have every, every bi-weekly prayer meetings together. My, they, my mom speak, still doesn't speak Finnish, but she prays in Kurdish, she prays in Finnish, they pray for each other's children, and they have coffee together, and it's like, a, it's a complete... Um, I mean, the only thing I can call it is a complete God thing because and how grateful am I for the life of this woman and for the obedience that she had to God because I know that it was her prayers that carried us through a lot of things. I can see that now in hindsight. Yeah. And it was her prayers that sort of facilitated the ground for us to, to have the, the conversions that we've had. That's amazing. So has your faith made a difference to the way you see the whole world situation of refugees today? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it all makes sense now. <laughs> it, it, everything makes sense. And everything is a little bit more... I think it's made two differences. As in, everything is a little bit more sad than it was. Because, yeah. I, I don't know how to explain this. I think when you start like tapping into the mind of God and to just think the things of God, how He sees things, and you see how humanity is sort of completely going against what He wants or yeah. how He wants things to be, then it's really sad in that sense. But at the same time, it makes sense in the sense that, okay, you know what's going on. You know, there's a God that loves people and he loves all people, regardless of their backgrounds, of their associated religions, of the things they have done or gone through. And all of the processes, all of the systems, everything that's in place, the whole thing, everything is a battle about God's love for this one person. He wants that person on his side through eternity. It's, wow. It all comes down to that. There are there are actual like refugees, young refugees that I have had conversations with and encounters with through various different means and uh, and God has put on my heart certain things to speak over their lives and certain scriptures to speak over their lives and I have this thing where I write things down on a journal and I, I call it my deeds with God. So I sign it and in my mind Jesus signs it and it's a deed and it's done. So I've written their names down, and I've got like little decorations and prayers over their lives. And I don't do it every day because I live a busy life, but every now and then if one of them comes to mind, I go and open that. I read it over them, and there are scriptures that God gave me specifically for each one of them that I had any encounters with. And I am going to believe by what I saw Marietta do all of those years, yeah. and not seeing anything come, past in, come to pass in our life. I'm going to believe that decades from now, Maybe I won't see it, but decades from now or years from now, that those things are going to be the truth in these people's lives. Yeah, so it seems your faith gives a certain dimension of hope towards the whole situation. Of, yeah, yeah. Of any well, refugee, any individual refugee, but also the whole regime in the world at the moment. Yeah, but he is the God of all hope, isn't he? I mean, without him, how, how could anybody make sense of anything that's going on at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. When you think about the way refugees are presented in the news and in the media at the moment, are there any things that you would like to correct or what do you think about the way refugees are presented? One of the things that we find most often, and this actually also links back to your earlier question about misconceptions, is there's this kind of narrative where either forced migration and the you know so-called refugee crisis is something for us to be really scared about 
you know, because there's going to be so many people and, you know, all of the misconceptions that, well, not, that's not necessarily a misconception that there could be lots of people, but the misconception that this is something that we should be really afraid of at one end of the spectrum. And I've even had, you know, people say to me, you know, like half of them are going to be terrorists and, you know, that type of end of the spectrum. Yeah. Through to the other end of the spectrum where you find people who um, want to victimize or like patronize or have a quite a sort of savior mentality and i think this can oh, be something that is found you know unfortunately um often unwittingly in kind of faith communities this idea that you know people just need someone to be nice to them and then everything will be okay and um, well, they're seen as kind of helpless yeah a, help, a helpless or like that kind of lack of agency and i think alongside that often what comes in is this idea that people should be kind of eternally grateful and so we've had a number of situations when people who, who have been uh, particularly through resettlement programs and faced real real challenges have been met by this response of you know but you're here so therefore everything else should kind of pay in comparison you should just be grateful because you're here you're not allowed actually, to criticize this yeah country. exactly you're not yeah. allowed to criticize the country you're not allowed to criticize the government because they've given you this status you're not allowed to criticize this church group because they were your community sponsor or you know yeah. whatever it might be but actually what that person has experienced um you know is what shna has been describing or like an utter loss of actually what they wanted life to be like. There's a title of a, a short a short book that was produced by um, an, a, a refugee lady many years ago now called I Did Not Choose to Come Here. And that okay. kind of really captures everything. And yeah, I think we're often faced with this misconception that refugee families and young people should you know, respond with this kind of eternal gratitude. Yeah. Um, that often coincides with when there's been that sort of slight saviour mentality of like, I'm going to help these people. And yeah. then like, subtext, and then like, you know, they're going to be grateful to me for doing it, which just is really messed up, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we look for in like, volunteers that we work with. And, you know, when Shah is recruiting volunteers to be mentors, you know, we're actually looking... We're looking for people who actually recognise that they're also going to benefit from this relationship yeah. and that they're going to learn and grow and have their world be challenged and enriched and uh, transformed and turned on its head sometimes by this, that this is not a, you know, there's a mutuality to yeah. friendship and relationship and kind of saying, right, what, what future are we kind of co-creating together in this place rather than this sort of narrative that you sometimes get of like either threat or this like lack of agency and gratitude combination yeah um, and I think trying to work in that space is, is yeah. just much more human yeah I mean at a very basic level I think sometimes it's easy to think if somebody's English is not like quite at a fluent level it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that means they're not actually that intelligent or they're, they're still quite immature or something like that. I've made this mistake in the past as well. I remember particularly talking to an Iranian guy who was doing a PhD and I realised all of a sudden that I'd been treating him more like a student with much less understanding than me. And he said something that made me suddenly realise this guy's really smart. This guy's, you know, he's doing a PhD and I, I need to remember that 
if his English isn't quite as good as mine, that doesn't mean he's not really smart and mm. understands everything just as well as I do. Good to see you try to do a PhD and yeah, exactly, or exactly. Anything. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think people often forget as well that refugees and it's not a sort of particular slice of society in that sense. Like there could be anybody from any kind of profession or any kind of position in life where they came from. And the fact that they are somewhere else proves that they are not completely lacking agency because they've had to do something to get there. They've had to be independent and make difficult independent choices. And particularly, I think that's the case with the current crisis. Um, you know, not, not that it wasn't the case previously, but um, I think with currently what's happening in Afghanistan, and the, the immediate evacuation and resettlement of Afghans to the UK, that's you know, families of people who've been interpreters, who've worked for the government, who've worked you know, high yeah. up in sort of politically linked organisations, or have been, you know, even as it goes forward, you know, even human rights activists or journalists, it's, it, yeah. you know, it's the, the elite of the kind of educated groups of a, of a population. And I think to be put in a to be put in a box of this, just a very needy person different to that yeah is it, it's really offensive actually yeah i think i remember when we were talking when you were interviewing me for the role uh, with RA UK, mm-hmm. and i remember i shared something about my frustrations when i was younger in finland was um in the beginning when they when they would assess us they would do these like language tests with us and they would assess what grade we could go on to based on our language ability and they put me in like with a class that was actually relevant to my age but what they were teaching in the class were all stuff I had learned in, in Iran already in biology and in oh, math right. and stuff like that uh, so I remember going to the assessor person who was also very lovely and I told her but I already know this and I, I know how to do this and da, da, da. and she kind of uh, she was also a very witty person in that she wasn't going too much by the book she was staying within the structure of what she needed to do but when she picked up on the fact that I am not being challenged in the class and I feel like I'm finishing the homework before everyone else. She did make the decision of like putting me one grade higher. Oh, great. Um, but even in like throughout high school, I think the assumption was always that I wouldn't go to university, even though I was, I was, school was my thing. Like it wasn't because I was overly intelligent or whatever. It's just yeah. like I enjoyed learning and yeah. I, I probably will do something until the end of my life. I'll study something now, every now and then. But it was, the assumption was very much that, you know, you know, yes, university is an option, but you really don't have to consider it. You know, there are other options. You can yeah. go and study nursing, or you can go to the uh, College of Beauty stuff, whatever, yeah, like do nails and yeah, yeah, oh, and, yeah, which is amazing. There's nothing wrong with it. And actually, I may have done like really well by starting a business in that and stuff like that. It's, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But the assumption is like that there is this lesser sort of a capability of yeah. like doing well academically because you may not be as well uh, your options are sort of limited yeah yeah yeah, there is exactly that so you are kind of sort of uh, yeah and that culture of like either you are being put in a little kind of a cotton wool sort of a space where you're being looked after and being put on social care and everything you have is paid for so you don't have to go through the trouble of going and fending for for yourself or then you have the other spectrum where you're like this evil refugee person who's come to (laughs) terrorize my space of living and stuff so but there is an in-between space where actually people are 
you know, they want to work, and even if they don't come from a background where they've worked and stuff like that, they yeah. want to work, they want to learn, they want to contribute back to society, yeah. they want to pay taxes, they want to be part of the workforce, um, and they want to sort of be living the similar lifestyle of, you know, there is a, I think one of the things that's missing and lacking severely from my people from my background is structure, as yeah. in you have a certain type of structure to your life. And the Western lifestyle is regimented in a way that's, I think, in many ways, beneficial to people who come from where I come from. Interesting. Uh, in putting some structure into their lives and in putting some routines in. Basic stuff for, for you if you've grown up here, not so basic if you've grown up where I've grown yeah. up. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm hearing you say, like, refugees just need to be given the right opportunities to show how much they can give back. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I read that throw in there is that in, in this conversation about English language um, and how when someone's English language um, isn't yet fluent we can make academic assumptions about their ability because of that I would also say that there's a responsibility then on us as a host country to give people the opportunity to develop their English language as yeah. quickly as we can because it is a barrier onto mainstream academic courses and to university courses um, for people who, you know, in every other respect absolutely could be flourishing in those courses right away. And at the moment we just we just aren't doing that to the extent that we should be. So the typical pattern for a young person Majority of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children will arrive as older teenagers. So let's say they're a 16-year-old. Mm. They'll go into an English for Speakers of Other Languages, an ESOL programme, typically in a further education college. If they're studying full-time, they're still only getting, it varies slightly from college to college, but let's say 16, 17 hours of English with a bit of integrated IT and um, you know, numeracy each week. Mm. And so young people get like, just stuck in this yeah. ESO cycle. Um, and ESO is absolutely brilliant, don't get me wrong. But we need to think, I think, more about how young people can learn faster so that those who do want to be going on the more academic track have got the opportunity to do so and aren't you know, stuck doing three years of a few hours a week of English language learning and they're kind of, you know, we have people every week coming um, to RE UK and saying where can I do more I want to do more I want to learn faster I want to get further yeah. there's this course I want to do but my English isn't at the right level yet where can I do that and and they often end up doing a like, little hodgepodge of different things if it if indeed that is at all possible and so anything that we can be doing to support that in the immediate years after arrival mm. that intensive like almost like get that done as quickly as you can yeah um, so it's like the english language is just about it's just this one barrier that's stopping yeah. them from progressing so much yeah. in so many different ways yeah and actually helping them overcome that barrier is something anybody can do who's a native english speaker right yeah. you don't have to be trained at all yeah just have a conversation yeah mm. yeah if you're if you're if you're a six-year-old going into a primary school then Yes, it's going to be immensely difficult to start with, but you know all of the data shows that if you arrive before a certain age, then your outcomes later are going to be you know better because you get that that you do get that English absorption and you know, yeah. gradual development. But the reality is for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children, that is not the age at which they're arriving. They're arriving at year ten, year eleven, yeah. so you know, 15, 16, and it's just a completely different story. And we we do need to think about that. 
Yeah, so there's there's lots there that just the ordinary person in the UK can do to sort of help out and, and smooth the road in a way that benefits everybody in the long run. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to both of you for your contributions and I hope we can get the chance to talk again sometime. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye.